John 6:35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when God wanted for the very first time in history to reveal himself not only to a select individual but to uh, the masses, he gave them what? Bread, manna in the wilderness every day so that they would know what he's like. And when God wanted everyone to remember the big story that he was authoring all across generations, he gave them bread, a meal, Passover, to remember him. And later, when Jesus wanted everyone to understand what they were about to witness through his crucifixion, he gave them bread, a loaf that he dramatically tore and then distributed around the table. And in fact, when Jesus was first tested in the wilderness, the original deceiver started with bread, turned these stones into bread. And then all the way at the end of the biblical story in Revelation, heaven and earth are restored and eternity with this God of pursuing love will be like bread, like a wedding feast that never ends. Bread is the imagery that Jesus chose to use that disoriented the followers, that, that thought they had him all figured out and fully understood the story that they were in so that they could enter the true thing. And it was bread, it was the imagery that Jesus used to invite those who were told that they were outside the bounds of that promise and this story. And so if you're gonna understand the story of scripture, if you're gonna get the life of Jesus and all that he's dragging into this familiar miraculous lunch of loaves and fishes in John 6, you're gonna to have to take a closer look at something as common and ordinary as bread. Knowing God, that's the theme for the teaching series that we've chosen that's gonna carry us from here all the way into Lent. And by the way, Happy New Year. It is so wonderful to be with you. I see that a number of people made New Year's resolutions to be more spiritual. Space on a number of people in the room. So welcome, you are, you are welcome here. I don't know if it'll work, but can't wait to be along for the ride. Um, so, sincerely, uh, I am so excited for the year that's ahead of us. This month is our Holy Spirit Conference, which I cannot wait for. And then the, the season of Lent this year is gonna be 40 days where we enter in again to 24 seven prayer. We open our prayer room back up, sign up for hours and get to inherit the stories that come from that. I cannot wait. And the proper context for all of that is to get our attention off of ourselves and onto God, knowing God, becoming aware of who he is and where he is and what all of that means for me. God revealed himself first in a burning bush to Moses who said, what is your name? And God said, I am. Jesus then picked up on that theme and used it all the time. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. In fact, John's gospel as a whole literary work is structured according to seven signs and seven names that Jesus worked to reveal God. And that structure wasn't entirely original to, God, to John. Seven is the Hebrew number of completion. And in the Hebrew Bible, or what we commonly call the Old Testament today, there are seven compound names for God. 
Yahweh, my healer, Yahweh, my banner, Yahweh, my provider, and so on. Seven names that add color to that original I am. And the first of the seven names in the Hebrew Bible is Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. That's the popular translation at least, but it's not the most accurate. Yahweh is the Hebrew rendering of that original I am that God called himself by. But the word Yireh, it comes from the Hebrew to see. So the most literal translation of this name goes something like, Yahweh will see to it. It's a name that makes me think of my four-year-old, Simon, my middle son, because he is the first among my children to freak out. And it's about anything. I mean, when another kid gets dessert before him, he always unconsciously assumes that that is the last cookie that will ever be baked on the face of the earth and goes into an immediate panic. And I have to say something like, hey, 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 dad will see to it. Or when he's asked to do something he doesn't know how to do. Like, hey, take your shoes off when you're coming inside, but he's got double knotted laces. He'll just begin to freak out. And I'll say, hey, bud, it's okay. Dad will see to it. Just this morning, he was served a bowl of oatmeal. And then just through a broken voice and tears blowing behind his eyes, I wanted cereal. <laughs> and so I had to enter in. Hey, it's okay, dad will see to it, which does not always mean that he will get what he wants. I didn't give him cereal. Uh, what it means is that what seems like a crisis to him, I will enter into on his level, become present within it, and then make him feel safe with the oatmeal that he's about to enjoy. <laughs> and that impulse to panic, I mean, we grow more sophisticated and become more restrained, but we never quite lose that altogether. I mean, you know what it's like to overreact, to lose sleep, to carry anxiety, to worry? And I'm talking to you about your adult child that you thought you were done worrying about at 18, but now he's 28 and the worry is more constant than it's ever been. And I'm talking to you about the new hire at your office who's caught the eye of management and suddenly you're worried and distracted about being passed up or about the investment you made that's begun to move in the wrong direction and you're kept awake at night by worst case scenarios playing in the back of your mind. I'm talking to you about the medical diagnosis that made your knees buckle and the future that you had assumed was yours shattered into pieces right in front of you. Yahweh will see to it. All that to say this is not a teaching series, it's an intellectual exercise about the names of God through the poetry of John. It's got everything to do with your day job everything to do with the stress that you carry about your finances, everything to do with your worries about your eldest child, everything to do with your dissatisfaction in your marriage, and everything to do with the actual events of your actual life in the actual world. Who is God? And how can I know him? Know him not only in the sanitized place of spiritual reflection, but know him here and now in the thick and complexity and mess of my everyday life. Know him in the racing of my mind, in the heart of my disappointment, and in the pit that's in my stomach. How can I know him here? Well, you start by knowing his name. And up for today is I am the bread of life. It's one name that I want to give you in four scenes. The sign, the encore, the bread, and the dinner. Here we go. So look back with me at John chapter six. We're gonna go a few other places in the scripture today. All those places will be on the screen, but I want you to follow along with me in the Bible right in front of you in John chapter six, because it is the anchor that we're gonna keep on coming back to. Now scene one, the sign. 
So just before the headline statement that we read a moment ago as our teaching text, Jesus performed arguably his most well-known miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. The key verse in this whole story though, the one that would have grabbed the attention of the original Hebrew readers is the very verse that you and I are tempted to just blaze past without ever even noticing it. And it's in John chapter six, verse four. So that's where we will begin. The Jewish Passover festival was near. That little detail is the key that unlocks the greater meaning of the whole story. Hang on to that. Continue reading. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this not only to test, oh, I'm sorry, he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. So check this out. Jesus intentionally asked a question to one of his disciples, setting up a sign that he was planning to uh, perform. A sign means that this is not a haphazard miracle. This is a very intentional miracle performed to reveal something true about God. It's a miracle that points beyond the spectacle to the identity of the miracle worker. A sign is a miracle that points to a person. And from there, you probably know the broad strokes of this story. I mean, if you've never even cracked a Bible for yourself, you probably have heard the one where Jesus took one kid's lunch and then used it to feed thousands. It's Jesus' only miracle that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It is in a miracle of provision. It is a Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will see to it kind of miracle. But this is a sign, and that means that Jesus is up to something more than just really efficient catering here. He is retelling a familiar story to reveal something that has been rumored but is still distant about God right in the thick and complexity of the lives of the people eating the bread and fish. You see, back at the other end of the Bible is an equally famous story called Exodus. And in Exodus, uh, God shows up to an enslaved Israel in need of rescue. He first reveals himself in that burning bush to Moses, calling himself I am, then works 10 plagues, parts a sea, and sends bread down from heaven daily as they wander through the wilderness. It's called manna. And then when an, when an invisible but powerful God hears your prayers, frees you from enslavement, and then marches you and your entire family from baking bricks under the boot of an oppressor to a promised land of freedom and prosperity, you're gonna want to remember that. And so what does God give them in order to remember all these signs that pointed to his person? A story? A series of prayers to recite? A song to sing? An animated Disney film from the late 90s or early 2000s? I can't remember exactly. None of that. He gives them a meal, a Passover meal a way to taste and recall these signs that pointed beyond themselves to a person, a God who delivered them. Now, by the time we get here to John chapter six, Israel's neck is under the boot of a new oppressor, the Romans, and there they begin crying out to God for another liberator, one like Moses. And the Jewish people believed that there were certain signs that they were meant to watch for that would signal this great liberator, this savior's arrival. And one of the signs they were told to watch for is manna will fall from heaven again. He'll give us bread in the wilderness today, just like we've heard he did back then. He will spread a Passover table before us. John 6, verse 4, the Jewish Passover festival was near. Our story begins. I told you to hold on to that, remember. 
So Jesus, like Moses, then gives them bread in the wilderness. Follow along with me. Jump down to verse 12. When they had all... When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 basketfuls. 12 baskets, not 11, not 13, 12. Why? Well, it's not about leftovers. This is a sign, remember? Every detail is important. There's nothing left to chance. It's a miracle that's pointing to a person. 12 basketfuls representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone in this Israelite crowd would know exactly what Jesus is saying. They would know exactly where the sign is pointing. Verse 14, all the people saw the sign Jesus performed and they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet, the promised savior, the one who will liberate us again like he did then, the one who will give us bread in the wilderness. Could this really be him? But we're just getting started here. Scene two, the encore. The psychology department at Princeton University used to conduct this one experiment on every single one of their students. They had every student peek through this little hole into a room, and the students had been briefed beforehand. They had been told exactly what to look for. There was this certain object in the center of the room that they were meant to study, and they'd be quizzed on that object after the experiment was over. So they would study this object intently as they looked through this little hole, and then they did a quiz, and almost every student could describe that object really well. But then there was a final question on this quiz, which was the point of the entire exercise, which said, did you notice anything else about the room? And generally, the response to that question was no, which was interesting because this room was a crazy room. One of the three walls was way taller than all of the others. The ceiling and the floor were both slanted. It was warped entirely, but almost no one noticed that at all. Why? Because it wasn't what they'd been told to look for. And sometimes when we're told what to look for, we see it, and we see it in detail and can describe it well, but we fail to see what surrounds it. And all that surrounds it can profoundly speak to what we're seeing. So how does this sign, the feeding of the 5,000, look if we see it in the room that it's sitting in, if we see it in its surroundings? Well, in Matthew's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000 is followed by another nearly identical miracle. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus feeds the 4,000. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a repeat. It is the exact same sign performed exactly the same way in a new place among new people. It's like Jesus is going on tour with the performance. What's going on here? Well, this is something that occurs repeatedly in Mark's gospel. Scholars sometimes call it a Markin sandwich. I happen to think that Matthew's gospel makes it a little bit more clear for this story in particular, so we're gonna call this our Matthean sandwich. You see, the gospel sometimes they contain literary bundles, and so what you'll get is two parallel stories, kinda like the top and bottom bread in a sandwich, and then a few accounts in the middle that provide context to each of those stories. It looks something like this. Do you see the sandwich? It's a little bit tall and skinny in this instance, but you see what I'm saying? 
Yeah, okay, cool. So in Matthew, it goes something like this. Story one, or the bread of the sandwich, pun intended, is the feeding of the 5,000. Then you've got these three accounts that are in the middle, and then you've got story two, which is the bottom bread, the feeding of the 4,000. But just as you're not really meant to take a sandwich apart and eat it one ingredient at a time, or at a time, if you wanna get the full flavor, you've gotta take a bite of the whole thing. So if you want to taste what Jesus is actually serving up in this sign, you have got to take one bite of this whole thing. So here comes the full bite. Story one, the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples collect 12 baskets, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning Jesus is the bread of life for Israel. Now here's those middle ingredients to this sandwich. First, Jesus walks on water. So immediately after feeding the 5,000, Jesus tells his disciples to get into a boat. He's gonna dismiss the crowds. He'll catch up with them later. He walks out on water and finds them freaking out, just like my little Simon, because they're in the midst of a violent storm. Waves are kicking up all around them, revealing that they saw the sign, but they missed the person. The miracle that the sign, I'm sorry, the, the person the miracle pointed to, Yahweh Yireh, the Lord will see to it. The provider will take care of you. The message Jesus was delivering through the taste of bread, they didn't fully comprehend. You see, it sounds great that God is provider until I'm the one who's powerless and helpless and in need of that provider. That's when I tend to kick and scream and grasp for any ounce of control I can get my hands on. I love God as provider until I need God to be my provider. Then second, Jesus has a disagreement with the priests about purity. You see, the priests of this time, they're convinced that spiritual purity comes down to eating and drinking, avoiding the wrong things and consuming the right things. Jesus says, essentially, you've got it exactly backwards. It's what comes out of your mouth, not what goes into your mouth that makes you spiritually unclean. Then third comes the faith of the Canaanite woman. Now I wanna zoom in a little bit closer on this one. Jesus goes directly from a public disagreement about spiritual purity with the priests to an encounter with someone who would be the most spiritually impure person by the priest standard. I mean, she's from Canaan. Canaanites were the ethnic enemies of the Jews in the first century. They were the bottom rung as far as Israel, Israel was concerned. And there's a ton of history there. The Canaanites were the very people occupying the promised land that the Exodus concluded at. In, ancient, uh, in the ancient story, they're a constant threat to the spiritual purity of Israel. And in the book of Deuteronomy, the Canaanites are referred to as the seven nations. Hang on to that. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread, there's our bread again, and toss it to the dogs. Now, dogs were an unclean animal according to the purity rites Jesus just disagreed with, and to call a Gentile's dogs was a common slur from Israelites pointed toward Gentiles in the first century. So Jesus is undeniably saying something offensive here. But he's not doing it to offend. He's doing it to both heal this woman's daughter and to teach his disciples. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter, healed, her daughter was healed at that moment. Jesus calls her faith great. Nowhere else in all of Matthew's gospel is anyone else's faith named great. 
The highest praise given to any person in the entire life and ministry of Jesus was directed to arguably the most spiritually and socially marginalized person to interact with Jesus. However rude you think Jesus was at the beginning of the story, he is unthinkably honoring at the end, revealing that the whole thing was a setup. And then Jesus gives her the bread. He gives her the bread of life. He heals her daughter. So that's the middle of this sandwich. Now here's the bottom bread. Story two, the feeding of the 4,000. It's an identical scene to what we saw at the top. The crowds are following him as he teaches the masses and heals the sick. The day's drawing to a close. He's in a remote place and there's nothing to eat. So Jesus asks his disciples if they've got anything. And you'll never guess, they've got the equivalent of one kid's lunch. A few fish and a few loaves of bread. It's an identical scene, except for this detail. The difference is that Jesus has crossed the lake. Here, he's in the region of Tyre and Sidon. He's in Gentile territory. He's in non-Israelite territory. He's in spiritually impure territory. The people gathered on this mountainside, hungry in a remote place, are not Israelites. Surrounded by a massive crowd of people considered to be second-class citizens and outside of Yahweh's providing hand, Jesus then performs the same sign. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish. And when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. And they, in turn, to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up. You'll never guess how many takeout containers they collect this time. Seven basketfuls of broken pieces were left over. Seven baskets, as in the seven nations, the Canaanites. Seven, as in the Hebrew number of completion, all people. Seven baskets of bread for all nations. Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus is showing them? Do you see what Jesus is showing to us? Do you see him? Do you see the person that the sign points to? 12 baskets to say, I am Yahweh Yireh, the God who will see to it. I'm the provider for all of Israel. And then seven baskets to say, and I am Yahweh Yireh, the God who will see to it, the provider for the whole world. I am the bread of life for all people. I'm the one who gives life, not just to the carriers of the promise, to the descendants of Exodus, but to every last one of us, to the most forgotten, most disqualified, most marginalized, most dismissed, to the one who thought that they were unqualified and outside of the promises of my providing hand, I've got a place of honor for you at my table. You see, these two miracles, they're good on their own. But when you get a bite of this whole thing, are you tracking with me? This is a little bit more dense than usual, but every move Jesus makes here is so charged with meaning. Are you following? Good, because we're only halfway home. <laughs> Scene three, the bread. So look back now at John chapter six. I'm gonna pick up in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So Jesus gives bread in the wilderness, and then he performs a miraculous water crossing. What story do you think this is reminding these Israelite crowds of? Exodus, right? Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. He parted the Red Sea. Later, Joshua parted the Jordan. It's Exodus. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That's Jesus, for you're dazzled. 
You tasted the bread and it even widened your eyes for a moment in wonder, but you did not see the person that the bread was pointing to. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now let's jump down together to verse 30. So they asked him, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Moses gave us bread. He gave us this bread from heaven, and he didn't just give it to us once. He gave it to us day after day after day, and we've been waiting on a savior like Moses, one to come to free us and then to lead us to freedom. Are you the one? Are you the one we've been waiting on? Are you the liberator? Are you who you seem to be saying that you are? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying to them, no, 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 it wasn't Moses who was giving you bread. That was my Father. My Father was sending you bread in the wilderness and that bread was pointing to his person. Let's keep reading. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the person that the sign pointed to. I am the bread. I am the provision that's been given to you in the wilderness of your life. Verse 41, at this the Jews there began to grumble because they heard him say, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They're growing skeptical. So Jesus was right, they they want the miracle. And they want the miracle again and again and again. They want to be dazzled, but they do not see the person that the sign is pointing to. Now let's jump to verse 53. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You'll have true life if you take my life. It's such a beautiful exchange. My righteousness for your failure, my wisdom for your folly, my love for your hate, my innocence for your guilt, my resurrection for your inevitable death. It is such a beautiful exchange, only Jesus didn't say it like that. He didn't say it like I just said it. He said, if you'll eat my flesh and drink my blood. Jump down to verse 66 now. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You know, a younger me would often read stories like this one and then ask, why'd you have to put it that way, Jesus? I mean, come on, man, you know that sounds like cannibalism. (laughs) Is it really necessary to lose thousands of followers over a misconception about cannibalism? But now I think I'm beginning to see what he was doing. Jesus said it this way on purpose, to offend and to promise. So first, the offense. Uh, The Israelites had all kinds of purity laws about blood. To come in contact with blood made you spiritually impure. Those laws are rooted in the Mosaic Covenant, the, the very story from which the first bread miracle was pulling from. And then remember the, the middle of the sandwich. 
Jesus had a disagreement with the priests about purity laws. That's wedged right into the center. Jesus says, drink my blood, and then you'll get the freedom and the life you're after, and that is the only way. Jesus had a different definition of purity, one that was going to expand the family of God. But in order to expand the family of God, first he would have to offend those who thought they knew the boundary lines of the family of God. I am the bread of life. I am the person the sign points to. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Take my life into your life. Later, with the full context of his life, the beauty of this invitation will be so clear to anyone who looks at it. But in this moment, it is a wince and look away. I'm not sure I can go there with you. Hard to hear kind of invitation. It's an offense. You know, the, the human body can't process raw wheat. If you and I were to try to live off of wheat, we could eat a few bites, like a few heads of grain. But if we tried to eat enough wheat to nourish our appetites, it would make us sick. It actually causes you to vomit. It turns your stomach. Wheat, before it's been ground down into flour and dough and then baked into bread, it cannot be digested. Wheat must be processed before it can be life-giving, right? In order for wheat, the, the raw material that becomes bread, the world's most common and most consumed food, in order for that to become nourishment, it has to be processed. And this word from Jesus, I am the bread of life, it has to be processed. Only later, in the full context of the person that the sign points to, did this hard saying that offends suddenly become a breathtakingly beautiful promise. The principle behind the offense is this. Sometimes a word from God has to be processed to be revealed as good news. You can't follow Jesus for very long without having an experience like that. Jesus, I love your take on the poor, but you do seem to be pretty hard on the rich. Jesus, I love your open invitation to all the nations, but then you get so narrow and restrictive when it comes to the way to God. I mean, one side of the coin seems to be broad and pluralistic, and the other side seems so narrow and exclusive. Jesus, I love the way you open the, the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are like poetry to my ears, but you so quickly then jump to a sexual ethic that, that for me, in my circumstances, in my context, in the culture that I live in, and then the thoughts that I'm trying to deal with, it just sounds like nails on a chalkboard. You know this kind of experience? See, when Jesus' teaching doesn't square with my life experience, you know what it tastes like? like raw wheat on my tongue. Jesus, so much of your teaching, it is bread that nourishes my soul, but there are these few bits that just turn my stomach. Do you know that experience? I am the bread of life, that's good news. This is a good news story with a tragic scene. The tragedy is that most in the crowd don't stick around for the processing. I mean, even Jesus' disciples admitted that this was a hard teaching to swallow, but they stayed with the person behind the hard saying. Verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. 
And I mean, for all the times Pete put his foot in his mouth in a big moment, he did nail it on this one. Jesus has not revealed a God we can perfectly understand, but he has revealed a God we can perfectly trust. I can trust the God who, even when he does not make my suffering go, go away, wears my suffering alongside me. And I can trust the God who, even when he's seen the very worst in me, will never leave me or forsake me. I can trust the God who, even when he says something that turns my stomach, will then walk beside me every step of the processing. And I can trust the God who does not condemn me for what I don't see, but shows it to me, who takes me to the Canaanite woman's house who introduces me to, the, to how far the boundaries of the family of God really go. See, trusting the person behind the hard saying means that sometimes a word from God has to be processed in order to be revealed as good news, but every word from his lips, it's good news. Many walked away, and Peter, he, he wasn't any less offended or any less confused he felt lost and alienated like all the rest of them did, but his response was, I'm staying. I believe that you are who you say you are, so I will sort out the confusion and the offense right here with you. And that is what you do when you run into a part of the Bible you don't like or want to look away from or wince in offense at or just totally baffled and confused by. You stay. Staying means instead of ignoring or avoiding the biblical passages that read to me as problematic, I hold my most real and honest questions before God in prayer and ask for his help. Staying means instead of holding the fashionably comfortable posture of fence-sitting on Jesus' currently most unpopular teachings, I do the hard work of understanding and discerning. Staying means I'm as honest about my doubt as I am about my belief with my Bridgetown community. And it means that I don't fear my brother or sister's doubt nor do I fear their belief. Staying means the hard work of repairing hurts that I felt from others in the community when avoidance would just be so much easier. It means forgiving and asking for forgiveness. Staying means confessing that sin pattern that you've confessed before, bringing it up again this time, even though I've begun to feel like a broken record. Staying means that both resonance and resistance are invitations to spiritual maturity. It means some bread will be immediately nourishing to my body and other will have to be processed before it becomes good news, but it's all good news. Staying means that processing Jesus' teaching always has and always will be part of maturity, so I engage it rather than running from it because sometimes a word from God has to be processed in order to be revealed as good news. And staying does not mean you will immediately have a satisfying answer. I wanted cereal. <laughs> Didn't get Simon's cereal. You usually won't immediately have a satisfying answer. Here's what staying does mean. It means that where you go with your questions matters. For most of us, when we can't square Jesus' teaching with our current life experience, we don't stick around to process the way Peter did. We withdraw from community and then create a pseudo-community built out of our pain. We find people who share our disillusionment, people who are put off in all the same ways that we are. 
We don't take our questions to the community members journeying alongside us, people who might challenge us and companion us and process with us. We find people who share our unique brand of disappointment with God and the church. And a community built out of disillusionment rather than faith, a community built on the foundation of common disbelief rather than common belief is the spiritual equivalent to ibuprofen. It can numb the symptoms for a moment, but it cannot heal any real sickness. A community that can empathize with you without challenging you is a community that can comfort you, but it can never heal you. And so most often, pseudo-communities built in reaction to pain are groups that are stuck wallowing together in that very pain. They're ones where we describe our symptoms to one another and our stomachs are turned in the same ways by all the same things, but we are never nourished by the bread that that raw wheat can become. Where you go with your questions matters. And if we're to know the person that this sign points to, we have to be willing to process the bits that at first leave a bad taste in our mouths. We have to be willing to stay when walking away would be so much easier. Jesus was not afraid to offend. But the point was never the offense. The point was the promise. That's what he was speaking. And promise is the reward of those who stay, those who trust, those who process. And that brings us to our final scene, scene four, the dinner. For those who stayed, the words Jesus said, the raw wheat, he brought to life as bread. In the wilderness, God through Moses fed Israel. And what did God give the Israelites to remember the Exodus journey? How were they supposed to remember all these signs, the burning bush and the 10 plagues and the Red Sea that pointed to this person through a meal, a Passover meal? And then in the wilderness, God, through Jesus, fed Israel and the nations. And so what did Jesus give the world to remember his life by? How are we supposed to remember all these signs that pointed to his person, a meal, a Passover meal? The Jewish Passover festival was near. That's where we started. It's the key I told you to hold on to that unlocks the meaning of the whole story. It's the context John gave us for the sign, the bread that points to this person, the bread of life. But then that phrase gets repeated again at the end of the story. On the final night of Jesus' life, it was just before the Passover festival. That's where we end. It's the same key on the other side of the life of God. On the final night of Jesus' life, it's the exact same context given for the same sign pointing to the same person. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then he took what? Bread. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. And then he took the cup, and he poured the wine. And he said, and this is my blood which is poured out for you. Jesus gives us a meal that completes the story. It connects the dots of what he said years ago in the wilderness that what first turned our stomachs has now been turned into life. I am the bread of life. On that very night, those who stayed, those who trusted, those who processed will witness the promise he was making all the way back then. You see, for wheat to be made into bread, it goes through a process, a violent process. 
First it's harvested when it's cut and cut all the way through and cut at the root. And then comes threshing when those wheat stalks are beaten against a hard surface until the grain shell is removed from the stalk. And then there's winnowing when the chaff is stripped away from the wheat and then it's ground down into flour. When what was once wheat is now completely unrecognizable as wheat, although it's all the same substance that's still there. And then the dough is baked. It is put under a violent amount of heat until it rises. And then, after it's risen, the raw wheat has been processed into bread that can give life. You see it, don't you? You see the person that the sign points to? You see him. The bread of life. Jesus, at the Last Supper, said the very thing he said at the feeding of the 5,000. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then later that very night, they watched as he was cut, beaten, ground so thoroughly he was not even recognizable as a man, though all the substance of him was still there. He was threshed, winnowed, baked, put through unimaginable violence until he rises. Those who stayed through the offense saw the unimaginable gift of the promise. This Jesus, he is the I am. He is Yahweh Yireh. He is the burning bush clothed in human flesh. The offense became a promise. And it's a promise that we remember. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus that won the greatest victory and took away death's sting. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, he said. I uh, said another way, this, this table, it's where I've always been going. It's what I've always been promising. So every time you gather around this table from this day forth and you break this bread, be sure you remember me. It's a promise we remember and it's a promise we anticipate. Because when Jesus returns and sets a heavenly feast table with bread for the nations that will satisfy for eternity, uh, what's, what's heaven going to be like? What is an eternity with God actually going to feel like? It's not a church service that never ends. It's a feast that never ends. One where the bread never runs out and the wine just keeps getting poured and I never get too full for another bite. It is the bread of life. In a recent sociological study that was conducted to determine what are the phrases that just, at the moment they're said, bring the most joy to the human heart, this was the top three in order. I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. <laughs> and you know why I love that? Because it's a perfect summary of the ministry of Jesus. I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. This, this table, says Jesus, is where I've always been going. It's what I've always been promising. And this, this table, says Jesus, is on my mind until the day I sit down at it across from you. In the words of Philip Yancey, this table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. 
Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the table, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anybody wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers alive. Who is God? And how can I know him? Know him not just in the sanitized place of my spiritual reflection, but know him in the thick of the complexity and mess and anxiety and worry of my everyday life. How can I know him here? And the disappointment that I feel and the confusion that I face and the thing he says that turns my stomach and the pit that I feel in my stomach when I think about that situation, how can I know him in the real life that I'm actually living? Well, you start by knowing his name. I am the bread of life.